We are going through the book of Acts. We're almost done. Next week will be our last week in the book of Acts after a long, long, long time. But uh, so we're at the end. We're at Acts chapter 27. And uh, today I'm going to start out, I want to talk to you guys about train wrecks. I think this is working, but it might not. There we go. Train wrecks. Thanks, Jeff. I haven't seen this movie. I don't approve of this movie. I don't know anything about this movie. I just saw the picture and I thought it was neat. Okay? So it's just a disclaimer there. <laughs> but maybe the picture is speaking something to you. Maybe you uh, have a friend or a coworker or maybe a spouse <laughs> or a family member or yourself uh, who's a bit of a train wreck. And, you know, um, you're seeing your friends or you've been there with your coworker or your family member and you've seen them make bad decisions that lead to worse decisions, that lead to worse decisions, that lead to 3 a.m. phone calls where they're asking you to come crying, pick you, pick you up. Um, you, go, you go to them, you run to them, you're a good friend, you're a good family member, you're a good coworker, you go pick them up. You know, they say, we're well, not gonna do this again, never again, and the next weekend you're going and bailing them out of another situation. Again, um, I don't know if any of you guys know who I'm talking about. Uh, don't look at them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's exhausting to be a family member or a friend of a train wreck. And the closer your relationship with them is, the more exhausting it is. And because the truth of the matter is that we're not created as human beings to observe the suffering that others bring on themselves callously. We're, we're created for relationship. We're created, uh, we're created to be in friendship, relationships with other people. And so when we see people involved in or acting in destructive ways that are hurting themselves, particularly when they're those who we love and we're, there's those who are, we're in relationship with, naturally speaking, we already are, it affects us. Uh, speaking at a higher level, a supernatural level, if we're members of the body of Christ, and we're, we're, we're united in that family, and then we see some of our brothers or our sisters getting involved in self-destructive behavior, getting involved in sin, we're not only, we're not only empathetic to it, we're not only um, engaged in it, but we're also called as brothers and sisters, as members of one another, to be a part of a body together, to be admonishing one another, to be calling people back to faithfulness and repentance and Restore, a restored relation and renewed relationship with God. The truth of the matter is that, that we, don't, we don't see br brothers and sisters and friends and coworkers as train wrecks. Uh, we actually see that we're called to, as Christians, actually, um, maybe this is not working, that we're actually, we're actually in the boat, we're actually in the ship with them. There's actually, particularly if you're talking within the Christian community, um, they used to, and this church isn't made like this, but there's a number of churches that have this sort of ceiling, but the ceiling's a little bit bowed even more than this is. And they actually made, I've been in a church, for example, in Boston and in New York City that was kind of the tradition of the churches uh, in that region in that time uh, of the, uh, you know, right after the American Revolution. If you go to the churches in New York City or Boston, you'll see a lot of the churches with ceilings like this, but a little bit of a bowed. And they're called like the ships, I don't remember what they're called, they're like the, the ship's hull. And they actually made the, the, sh the ceiling of the church like the underside of a ship, reminding them visually as they walk into, you know, into community with one another that they are actually, they're actually involved very much in, you know, to be cheesy a little bit, they're actually involved very much in fellowship, that they're all fellows under and in the same 
the same ship. And the, the idea about this idea of the train wreck or the idea of us actually being involved in the same ship is, is that when we see some of our members, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, when we see some of our friends and our family or, or our church members or brothers and sisters in that way, when we see people engaging in self-destructive behaviors, we actually find ourselves drawn to our fate is tied with them. We're, we're, we're brought together with them in the bounds of this relationship. If they go down, we go down together. And I bring that up because in Acts 27, the, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul actually has this experience of his fate being tied to the ill-advised decisions and self-destructive behaviors of others. And providence, so what's happening in Acts chapter 27 is that the Apostle Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, and he's been arrested, he's been brought in front of all the governors of Judea, he was brought in front of uh, King Agrippa of the region of Judea, and he appeals, he appeals to Rome that he will be, he'll be then sent to, to trial at Rome. And so in Acts 27, he is, he is being transported to Rome, and he is placed on actually two different ships bound to go to Rome where he's going to stand in front of Caesar. And as he is there... He is providentially, a big theme of this chapter, if you want to just get the big theme out of it, the big theme of this chapter is that God has providentially placed the Apostle Paul and a couple other Christians, Luke, and then there's a, another guy who's, who's on the ship as well that may be a Christian, maybe a person who comes up later. Um, but God has providentially placed the Apostle Paul on this ship for the preservation and care of the other 276 people on the vessel. And Paul's there, and you're going to see as we go through this chapter, Paul's there to warn them of the danger and to proclaim and encourage and proclaim to them the hope that God has revealed to him as he's on the ship with these 275 other individuals. As we go through the chapter, you see they, they do indeed, they actually go through the shipwreck together, but then they actually make it to the other side together. And as we work through this chapter, we see precisely why Paul is on this boat. And it's a hard chapter to preach. It is a hard chapter to study. It's a hard chapter to understand. But, but I do want to use it a little bit to encourage us, as at times we ask the question that when we see our family or a friend or a coworker or our church member of us starting down that path of self-destructive behavior, how, how do we, how do we, what do we do? And that's where we're going to go today. We're, to, to see that God has providentially put us into various ships of our life in order to warn and to proclaim the hope of the gospel. And so we see from the beginning, Paul's here, and he's here to warn the others of the danger. Uh, Luke details for us that the ship is riddled with difficulty from the beginning. Look at this. This is uh, Acts 27, verse 4. And Luke is... You know, when you see repetition happening in Scripture, it's, it's, to, it's to open your eyes to see that this is something that the author is doing here to kind of like point it out to us. So read Acts 27.4 and look at all the times that Luke points out to them that this, this voyage was in danger from the beginning. It says, In putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion, who Paul was in, in his charge, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. 
We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was, which was uh, near which was the city of Lacia. I forgot to put up the picture of the map, sorry. If you've got a Bible, you might flip to the back and see all these places. You can, you can do that yourself as you, as you, as you go home. Uh, but basically, Luke's pointing out to us all the difficulties that they're encountering just as they leave the port with Paul, and they, they're, they're having difficulties from the beginning. The, the time of year it was, they have to go, they can't just sail right to Rome, they actually have to stay pretty close to, um, to the coastline of, of, um, of Palestine and then around the coast, uh, what's now modern-day Turkey, they're staying pretty close to the side. But Luke points out again and away, again, five different ways Luke is highlighting, they're facing struggles. Ancient vessels were driven by the mercy of the wind. I mean, now we have ways of, you know, automating our ships. I don't, I don't, I'm not a sailor. But they, they basically, they had to go with the wind or seven degrees, within seven degrees of the direction the wind was blowing. Sometimes they would just take down the sails and go with the current, and the current here now is pushing them up the coast and around Turkey. But they basically were at the mercy. And as they're at the mercy of the wind and the current, Luke points out they're having a difficult go at this. And the difficulties they faced in the first part of the trip set their schedule back enough that they now, when we get to verse 9, they now face the impending danger of late autumn storms. And there's one person on the ship. Sorry, Dave. I guess you're just going to have to click for me. Whenever I do this, just click. There you go. Click. The forward arrow. There we go. Actually, go back one. <laughs> there we go. There we go. As they are, <laughs> sorry, there we go. As they are impeded in their progress, there's one person on the ship that actually, actually a couple people on the ship that actually see the danger that they're in. And, and there's one person who sees the, daily clear, the, the danger clearly, and he's providentially on the boat to warn the others of the dangers that they're faced by pressing ahead. So in Acts chapter 27, verse 9, it says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of his ship than what Paul said. Here's what's going on. Luke informs us that the, the fast has already passed. The fast was probably the fast that had to do with the Day of Atonement, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which is the end of their year, right, and into the new year. So this is, this is already autumn. In fact, in AD 59, which is probably the year that this takes place in, the fast ends on October 5th. So it's right about this time of year. And I know we've had an awesome autumn where we, it still feels like it's summer outside. Generally speaking, we're now getting ready for winter. And what happens in the Mediterranean Sea after September 15th, people start wrapping up because they know that after September 15th, you're going to hit dangerous waters, dangerous storms, dangerous winds. And after September 15th, we already know it's dangerous. And now they're probably a little bit after October 5th. They're probably right about now. Uh, after late October and into early November, they actually, you, you, you would find no ships on the Mediterranean. They, they shut it down completely. And so Paul has been seeing that there's been uh, pushback already from the wind. The, the winds and the currents have not been with them. And so he warns everybody on the ship of their impending danger. Now, it's not a surprise that they ignore him. 
Like, we know him as the Apostle Paul, right? Like, we know him as, like, a, thinking, like, a, Paul's got this special, you know, modem to God or something like that, right? He's the Apostle. They don't know him as the Apostle Paul on this boat. They know him as Prisoner Paul. And so he, here's this prisoner going up to the captain, the centurion, and the owner of the boat, and saying, sirs, I perceive that this is not going to go well with us. And there's nothing in the text that, that tells us that, that, that Paul has had this unique kind of connection to God to know that this happens. But Paul actually is using right now his, his, his sense and his experience as a sailor. Up until now, uh, one commentator said Paul's actually put uh, 3,500 miles on the sea before this trip has even started. Paul is not a sailor, but he's an experienced traveler, and he's been traveling in these seas, and he warns them of the danger which is to follow. Now, of course, they ignore him for a number of reasons. Number one, who is this prisoner to tell us? Number two, uh, the emperor at the time, uh, they were having uh, food shortages in Rome, and so we actually have records in history of the, uh, actually, I think it's Josephus who tells us about this, the emperor of the time was actually paying merchants extra if they could get grain to Rome in time before the, before the season ended. And so you have the owner of the ship and you have the commander and they're all kind of just trying to, they want to get to Rome because Rome means money. So it's not just that they're not listening to Paul because of, you know, who is this prisoner to tell us what to do, but they also, they also have economic reasons to ignore Paul. And so here's what they do. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, verse 12, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and to spend the winter from there. Listen to what, how Luke records this for us. This is not something that gives us great confidence in their decision-making. It's this gamble that they're taking, and Luke records it. They decide to, they decide to put out to sea on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Like Luke is saying to us, this is a gamble that they're taking. They've already been at the mercy of the currents and the winds, and now they're going out and they're just hoping they can make safe harbor. Now, they're, they're probably okay. The, the, the vessel from, from where they are at the Cape of um, uh, Fair Havens to where they're trying to get to in Phoenix is only a 35-mile trip. Like, they're probably thinking we can do this in four to six hours. Okay? It's just along the coastline of Crete. But Paul has been warning them, I don't think we should do this, I don't think we should do this. Even they themselves recognize the risk. Maybe somehow, by chance, we can make it. But it's only a four to six hour trip. So let's see what happens here. Now, when the south wind blew gently, so, so there's a good, nice south wind that's going to blow them against, the, against the, uh, the shore of Crete. When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they'd obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind. The Greek word here is the word we get, the English word, I don't, I don't understand this because we also get a Japanese word, so it must, Morio, the Japanese word must also come from this Greek word. Or the Greek word comes from the Japanese word, I don't know. But the word here is the Greek word typhoonus. It's the typhoon. So, but soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter, the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda or Clauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used the ship's supports to undergird the ship, 
And then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. As I said, they should have reached the harbor in a few hours, but as they're just going out and they're risking this, even against the advice that Paul's given them, you know, Paul said, I, we, we are being delayed and this is a risk you're going to take. I advise, I see that if we go out there, we're going to lose life and goods. And they say, we're going to take this risk. And they go out for probably an hour, things are fine. But as they get around the Cape, at the southern end of Crete, suddenly this typhoon gale wind blows them off course and now blows them away. And there's only one more island between them and, and the open sea. And they're headed direct, otherwise they're directly, the wind is going to blow them directly into the North African coast, into an area called the Sirtis, which was a shallow region of sandbars and muck and where ships just went to die. And so at this point, they're, they're, they're freaking out. They lower the sails. They, they direct the craft headlong into the wind, and they're basically now just being driven and lost at sea. And for nearly two weeks, they weather the storm and the terrifying winds. Uh, actually, I'll go along and read a little bit more. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So they start throwing the cargo overboard, and on the third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. These guys are freaked out. They've, they've not only thrown a, 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 a out their possessions, the money that they had, you know, that investment they had in the wheat, but now they're even throwing out their tackle, the, the, what they're going to eat. They're just saying, we, we just have to lighten the boat because we don't want to be crashed into these sandbars into this harbor. On the third day, they throw out the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, and when neither sun nor star appears for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And in the midst of this storm, the Apostle Paul has already been there. He's already been a voice warning them against this course of action. But now in the midst of the storm, they've, they've thrown out any hope of deliverance, any hope of salvation, any hope of, of, of them being saved. And now the Apostle Paul stands again and speaks to those who are on the ship. And he's going to speak a word of warning, a word of hope, and a call to repentance. He, we see first that he's here to call them to repentance. First thing he says is actually call to them to repentance. It says um, in verse 20, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> right? What's a modern translation of that? I told you so, right? Men, <laughs> you should have listened to me. And not set sail from Crete and incurred this, this injury and loss. And we can laugh about this because we all know, we've all been there kind of thing where you've urged somebody about the danger that lays ahead about their course of action and they went and they pressed on anyway and, and maybe it was us, maybe it was you who pressed on and maybe it was your parent or your friend that says, hey, I told you so. And this isn't a told you so moment, but I want you to see here, this is something a little bit beyond just an a told you so moment. Because we can give our friends and our coworkers and our families and we can be the recipient of an I told you so moment that's just an I told you so moment, but that's not how this is functioning here. This is not the Apostle Paul scoring points in his own ledger saying, ha, 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 I was right, you were wrong, I told you so. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing here is he's actually calling them to a repentance where they had ignored his voice of caution before, and now he's going to give them a new word. 
And so this I told you so is not just to mark in my ledger, I'm right, you're wrong. This I told you so moment is to remind them that he had given them good counsel before and now he's going to again bring a word of hope to them. He's calling them to a repentance. And, and this is really important, both for you and for me and for the people who we are in, in shipwrecks with, who are, who are doing their own self-destructive behavior. It's really important that we see our own complicity in our calamities. That was a good pastor sentence that I just made up on the spot. I know, I'm surprised myself. It's important that we see our complicity in our calamities when it's been us who have made the decisions that have pushed us into the chaos. And so what Paul's doing here is he's not just putting in a ledger, I told you so, he's pointing out to them that the reason they have found themselves in this calamity is because they had made bad decisions leading them into this. Even when all the warning signs were there, even when Paul had been providentially placed on the ship to say, men, we should go no further, they pressed on. And so that's some of the role that we play in each other's life as Christians together is to remind ourselves and to remind one another that sometimes when you come to me and you say, man, I don't understand why this is happening in our life, sometimes it's, we're called as Christians to say, look, some of it you have brought on yourself. You've been under the word of God. You've been under the teaching of the spirit. You've been under, you've been with, involved in a community where people have been saying, don't do this, and yet you pressed on. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I told you so, not because I'm, I'm proud standing over you with my ledger saying, ha, ha, ha. I'm saying, come to your senses, open up your eyes, and see what you have done to lead you into this calamity that, 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 that I now may show to you from the word of God how to get out of it. Okay? So he's there to call them to repentance, not just to say, I told you so. He's there on the ship. Nope. There he is. He's there on the ship to point them to God's salvation. And this is where the I told you so leads into. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Right? I, I'm not just saying this, I told you so, ha, 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 you're in your calamity. I urge you to take heart, for there will be, and he comes out with this crazy promise that he's going to explain to them in a second. But he comes up with this crazy promise, I urge you now, after, after they've given up completely all hope, they've abandoned all hope of being saved, Paul stands up amongst them and says, I told you so, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And he's going to proclaim to them revelation that he's received from the Lord. In fact, the angel of the Lord, he's going to say, has visited him. And he's going to proclaim to them a hope that they could not have had up until this point. That, that the word of God, the, the revelation from God has come onto the ship. Whereas before they were just going by their own mind, their own thoughts, their own hopes of what will happen, abandoning hope. Now there has been a word of God. And Paul says, I was there before warning you. Now I'm asking you to repent and go back. And now I'm going to proclaim to you that there is a hope. In the midst of this calamity, there is a hope. Some of us, when we come to our own calamity or to the calamity of others, we need to remember that we proclaim, as Christians, we proclaim a hope to people. We do not stand over our friends, even, and listen, 
When you are in relationship with a train wreck, it's just, you sometimes are just like, I just give up. I give up speaking to them. I give up caring for them. I give up going and responding to those 3 a.m. phone calls. I'm done, and I've done that myself. But Paul here has a word from God, a revelation from God in the midst of this calamity that will provide hope to those who are distressed. And this is really important because this is where often people are ready to hear the word of God proclaimed. Uh, there's a story in, in 1735, another shipwreck or, or imminent shipwreck. In 1735, a ship made its way to the New World from England. And on board was a young Anglican minister, John Wesley, who'd been invited to serve as a pastor. Now, Wesley had been invited to pastor, right? Uh, if you know about Wesley's story, he had already set up his... Uh, those, those, those men's clubs of discipline and, and religion and piety, he'd already set those up when he was in England. And now he was responding to a call to be a pastor in the New World. And he's on this ship, and he's on this vessel, and as, as the weather went sour, the ship found itself in serious trouble. And Wesley, who is also the chaplain of the vessel, feared for his life. And so he is going down, and he's just as hopeless as anybody else. And he noticed the group of German Morovians, who were, who were these other Christians who were on their way to preach to the American Indians, and he noticed they weren't afraid at all. In fact, throughout the storm, they sang, they sang calmly. And when the trip ended, they were spared. When the trip ended, he asked their leader, why were you so peaceful? And the leader responded with a question. He said, do you have faith in Christ? And Wesley didn't know what to say because he was trembling the whole time on board. And Wesley said, yes, 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 I do. Of course, I'm going to go be a pastor in the city. Yes, I do. But he later reflected, I fear they were vain words. And he was so confused by the experience that later uh, it was lead to, to lead to a period of soul searching and, and lead to, in his own words, he said, this, this is actually what led me to my conversion. That was when I was on the ship, when, when I'd given up complete hope, and when I'd saw, seen the peace of those around me, the peace that they could sing in that storm, that's what woke me up to genuine salvation. And this is a guy who was already going to be a pastor. So, so we're there on the ship to encourage one another by pointing to God's salvation. I urge you now to take heart. We're here on the ship to testify to one another of God's lordship. Look what Paul says next. He says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. This is the first time in the chapter that God is mentioned. And Paul says, I told you so. He says, take heart, for you'll be spared. And then he says, why? And the why is really important here. The why is, Paul says, because I've been visited by an angel of the God who, uh, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And Paul here testifies to all who are on the ship of God's lordship. He reveals that it's not just any God, but it's the creator of the heaven and the earth. It, it is God who owns the seas and that the God who owns the seas owns him. It's not just that it's the God that I worship. It's the God to whom I belong to have visited us. And he has given me hope that 
we will outlast this storm. He may not be the God you worship yet, but he's the God who owns me. And as you're walking through and you're walking with people who are in that boat headed for destruction, we are called, you might be called in that family or you might be called in that friendship or that workplace or that class. You might be called to be the one to say, look, I know you don't know Jesus yet, but I know him. And I can testify to you that he will not lead, if you trust in him, he will not lead you to destruction, ultimate destruction. There is a God who is, and there's a God who owns, and there's a God who, who, who I am here to worship. And so Paul reminds them that, that there is another on that ship. There is a greater being on that ship, and that is the God that they worship. So he's called to testify to them of what the angel has told them. He said, I, I don't have it on the, on, the, on the thing. He says to me in verse 24, he says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. And he says in verse 28, but we must run aground on some island. What happens is what the angel has told them. The angel has told Paul that the fate of him and the fate of all who are on the boat with him are tied together. He says to Paul, Paul, I've told you all along that you must testify to me in Rome. But now the angel reveals to him that yes, that promise is still secured. Paul must, reveal, Paul, Paul must testify to him in Rome. But that now it's revealed that all the fate of all the others on the boat are tied up with Paul. We're going to come to that in a second. But so Paul encourages them with that, but then he actually tells them, and he prepares them for the reality that we must run aground on some island. Paul prepares them for the reality that while God has promised that he'll get them safely, he'll get them to their destination, there will still be immediate consequences to be faced. There are still consequences. Like the, the people who are on the ship, Paul has told them they will get to the safe harbor. They will get to where they're going to get to. But he actually says that you're still going to be going through the shipwreck. There's still consequences for the decisions that you made to rush headlong into the storm. He doesn't remove them from the immediate consequence of the storm. But, but this word itself is a grace because having received this word from the angel, those ship can now prepare themselves for the crash. One of the, one of the key principles that is brought up in the New Testament is do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, so he shall reap. That, that when, we, when we sin, when we sin against the holy God, we, we, we suffer the consequences that our sin brings on. God still may save in the end, but while we are still going through this life, we might face have to, we might face the consequences of the sins that we are in. It's like David, for example. Right? Think about King David. David, though he had been a man after God's own heart, he was the great psalm writer of Israel, he had, during that episode with Bathsheba, he had so hardened his heart so that he had committed adultery and then, and then even murder. When, when Nathan the prophet came to David, and he gave, came with that great parable about the, the, the rich man who stole the other person's sheep. 
And David said, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are the man. David immediately repented, and the Lord forgave him his sin. That's what, that's what Nathan says to him. Nathan says to him in that moment, the Lord has heard you and forgives you of your sin. But the consequences of David's sin remained. He lost a son over it. He lost another son over it who tried to take his kingdom away. There was family strife and struggle. There was Absalom, his son. There was, there was all this sort of calamity that came into David's family on a result of his sin. When God forgave him of his sin, David is assured safe harbor in heaven, but he still has to face the consequences of his sin that, that he has brought on himself. And so Paul here reminds them that they are to suffer together as they run aground on some island. And what happens here, as they go on, it says, When the fourteenth night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a soundling and found twenty fathoms. A little farther they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the, boats, the ship's boat into the sea under the, pretent, under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, sorry, I got that really, verse 30 again. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Paul had been told that the, shape, the, the fate of everyone on that ship was tied together with him. Right? So Paul had been told that, that, there that they were going to have to face this shipwreck together. That if they were to jump out of the ship and seek their own deliverance, they would be utterly lost. And so... And these women are terrified, and some of them prayed all night. I don't know if they were praying men, but they prayed all night. And others tried to escape from the ship. And Paul tells the centurion, if they leave, we're all going down. And he says, we're, we're, basically he says, we, to, to use the, the phrase from the TV show, lost, we, we live together or die alone. That's what Paul, Paul tells them. If they, if they go, we're not guaranteed their safety. We're only, safe, we're only guaranteed safety as we stay together. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so Paul is called in this, and as Paul's on the shipwreck with these men, Paul is called here to actually suffer the fate with the men on the ship. Paul has to go through the shipwreck with them, right? And so Paul's called here. He's not like he can be detached. That's what I'm talking about, the difference between a train wreck where you're looking at your friend or you're looking at your family and you're saying, man, that's terrible that they keep on getting into that. That's the difference here is that Paul's actually on the ship with these people, and their fate is somehow, God has said, somehow tied up together with one another. And so Paul's actually going to be suffering with them, along with them, even the consequences of their sin. And so the final thing that Paul does here is he sets the worship of Christ in front of them. And this is the last thing they do as they prepare for this shipwreck. The last thing that Paul does, verse 2733. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. It goes on to say, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing wheat out into the sea and prepared themselves for the wreckage. On the morning dawn on the 14th day, the Apostle Paul prepared them for the shipwreck that was soon to occur by urging them to take the last bit of nourishment they could spare so they could have strength to face the day. Verse 35 is a really interesting one in the middle of this whole story. There's been debate among commentators throughout church history about what Luke is doing for us by recording this here. Because the language that Luke uses to record what happens in the morning of the 14th day of this journey is very, very, very similar to language that Luke has used in his gospel and language that Luke has used all through the book of Acts to speak about the act of worship of the church gathering together, giving thanks, breaking bread together, and, and, and feeding and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so there's been a huge, there's been big debate about this passage throughout church history. Is this a celebration of the Lord's Supper on the midst of this calamity that they're finding themselves in? You can have your own opinion on that. I'll tell you what I, what I think Luke is, uh, one commentator said, and I think they're right. I don't, this isn't a formal observance of the Lord's Supper. This is not a church. This is not like the people on the ship are, we're given no indication that the rest of the men on the ship are Christians. Right? So this isn't like Paul getting up and going, I'm going to, we're going to have the Lord's Supper now. But what Luke is doing here, and I think the commentator is right, who's saying what Luke is doing here is he's showing that even in the midst of this calamity, and even in the midst of these people who are not yet Christians here, Paul is setting a picture of Christian worship in front of them. And Luke is recognizing what Paul is doing. And the other Christians on the boat probably recognized what Paul was doing, even if the rest of the people on the boat did not. And so what, what, the, what I would agree with that commentator who's saying, this is actually what it is, is it's not the Lord's Supper on the boat. What it is, is it's providing for us a picture of what worship looks like in the context of a calamity and in the context of people who are, who are, who are about to face that, that imminent destruction and about the calmness of a Christian in the midst of that. That though it provides for us as Christian calmness as we face calamity and calmness as even as we're, we're on the ship with people in our lives who are facing destruction on account of their sin, what we are to do is to set the worship of Christ in front of. We set the worship in front of Christ, in front of our family members, in front of our classmates, in front of our friends who are headed for destruction. And we show them a picture of that peace. And we show them that picture of our Savior, of our Savior who could have just saw us all as train wrecks heading for our own individual destruction, but what our Savior did in coming to earth, what our Savior did in leaving heaven, what our Savior did is he jumped aboard the ship of humanity. Our Savior jumped into our calamity. Our Savior put himself on our boat. He suffered with us, and he suffered for us in our place. And, and he, yes, he, he, hit, he, he went through the calamity even of death, but God rose him up again. And so what, 
what I see here, and, and what some commentators are saying here, is though this is not the Lord's Supper. What this is, is this is the Christian in the midst of the world setting out the worship of Christ and, and putting it on display. And that's what Wesley saw on that boat, didn't he? What Wesley saw on that boat as, as the storm raged and they saw that it was going down, what Wesley saw was he saw these genuine Christians singing and making melody and singing hymns of praise to God, setting in front of them the worship of Christ, and it rocked Wesley's core. And so that is what we're called to as we are Christians, as we're seeing people in our boat here of the church, or we're seeing people in relationship with what we're in, we are called, number one, we're called to warn. Just going back over this, we're called to warn. Like you see your brother, you see them going and, 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 and going off and running off into some sin, running off into some self-destruction behavior, whether they're your brother in your church, your brother at home, warn them, admonish them. Say, hey man, stop what you're doing, stop where you're going. We're called to warn. Secondly, we're called to, to call people back to repentance, not in a I told you so way, but in a hey man, come back way. And we're called to set the hope of Christ in front of them to say we have promises of God. The promises of God are that, 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 that God is mighty to save. Look up, set your hope on him. And we're called then to, to set the worship of Christ in front of them. So that's what we're doing here today as we gather together for worship. We're gathered here today to admonish some of us, to encourage others of us, to... Uh, to, to, to recognize that we're called together in this and to set the worship of Christ in front of us. And, and so that's what we're going to do even now as we go on in, in, our, in our time of worship. I'll call our worship team up here today. As we respond to God's word, we recognize that God has called us to be members of one another. And so as we, as we go forward as the church in our service here today, Here's what, here's what we're going to be doing and, and how I want to be encouraging you. Number one, take this time, even now, before the Lord. Whether, whether you're here today and you're a Christian, or whether you're here today and you're not yet, you don't yet consider you're a Christian. I pray that today, the Holy Spirit, through any of the words I said, or even any of the moments that right now as we're singing, I pray the Holy Spirit will be revealing to you that apart from Jesus Christ, we are all headed on a path toward destruction. I pray that he might be revealing specifically to you ways in which some of your own decisions and some of your own seeking after the things of this world are leading you into greater and greater destructions, both now and in the hereafter. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will be convicting you of that. And not, not because we as a church want to come around you and say, ha, 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 we told you so. But that he might draw your focus to Christ. And so take this time right now even to pray, to sit quietly before the Lord, to ask him to search your heart, to show him there's any offensive way in you, to, to reveal sin to you, and to point you to the only hope, your Savior. We're going to be singing songs of praise. We do this together because we set the worship of Jesus Christ in front of us all. And so they're going to be singing up here. They're going to be leading you all as you stand and as you sing with them, setting the worship of Christ in front of one another. And then what we do at the end, I'm going to be passing out, and the last song, I'll be passing out our trays 
with our crackers in our cup. And for those of you today who are Christians, who profess your faith publicly by baptism, what we'll do is we together will, will participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you're not there, you're still like those guys on the boat who didn't really realize what Paul was doing. That's fine. You're invited here to observe, but not participate. And so those who are here today who are Christians, who have professed their faith by baptism, we ask you to participate in this. Because what we're doing in these things is we're actually setting the worship of Christ in front of another. Right? We're, 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 we're remembering that it's not on the basis of what we have done that we are called into God's kingdom. It's on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And so as we sing, we'll be sending around the trays, take a cracker, take a cup, and together at the end of the time of singing, we'll be, uh, we'll be taking together the Lord's Supper. Pass the time. Actually, pray, and then we'll pass the time to you guys.